Hey everyone, welcome back to the State of Demand Gen podcast. This is your host, Chris Walker. We're about to get into a special version of Demand Gen Live that we did just now. Gatano Denardi joined us as a surprise guest. The people were pumped. For those of you that don't know, Demand Gen Live actually got started with Gatano and I, where we just threw out an idea. We wanted to host a Zoom, get some people together, talk about marketing, and then that evolved into a podcast and a lot of other things. And that's what we have today. And so the message for people is if you want to get started on some of these things, you don't need a strategy. You don't need to strategize for a very long time. Just try, see what works, feel what it's like sense what's going on with the audience. There's so much opportunity and so many things to do there. I think people get so caught up in trying to measure things or trying to do things. And so we got in some really cool things, some different topics that we don't usually cover on this podcast. And so I hope you enjoy it. And now to this episode. So let's dive in. There is a special part of this episode coming up. We'll see if and when it happens. I hope it works out the the way that we planned, but we're going to roll with it right now. And so we're going to get into the first topic. First off, hey, everyone, appreciate having you all here. I know it's like starting to get really nice out, at least in Boston. I'm sure it's getting nice out everywhere. You all are making like a conscious choice to come here and get better. I appreciate that. I also appreciate all of your participation and be, just being able to build a lot of cool relationships. Christine was on our podcast. I know a lot of starting to people that have been here for a while. I think I feel like I know you pretty well. And so I love that stuff. We are going to make a little bit of a pivot real quick and just pause for this surprise. We can figure this out. Yeah. Yo. Yo. <laughs> How so does for, it? So for any of the any of the OG demand gen live people that were here with us at the beginning, the beginning of the quarantine last year, Gatano and I got together. And decided that we would try this crazy thing called Demand Gen Live. We had no idea what we were doing. We just put it on a Zoom and we did a little promotion. About 20 people showed up and it's turned into something really cool. And so um, I was talking to Katano, catching up on some other things earlier this afternoon. And we were like, why don't we do a little throwback here and do a cool episode? So, gee, it's great to have you. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks, man. Good, good to be back. I see some familiar faces. Uh... And some other people I haven't met yet, but it's good to be here. Yeah. Thanks, uh, thanks for hitting me up. It'll be cool. So let's get into the uh, the first topic here. Gee, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to roll on one and then we'll kind of riff and then we'll see where we go from there. We'll maybe bounce in and out of Q&A. We'll see what happens. But so something that's been on my mind recently, I've actually have, I've been having a little bit of, uh, I feel like I've had a little bit of like difficulty explaining and communicating it, but it all felt like it came together for me. And it was just like all made sense over this weekend. And so I want to share some of the things specifically around this idea of the dark funnel. And so the dark funnel has been popularized by intent data providers in order to activate outbound or to activate ads, but mainly to activate outbound sales. And so, but what I'm here to talk about is not that I'm here to talk about what it means and how marketers can use it practically to do better marketing, understanding it and then leaning into it. And so the reality of the situation is that buyers are researching and discovering and evaluating products in places that companies can't track. Communities, organic social, content through podcasts, word of mouth, through trusted peers, which is crazy important right now, 
all these things that companies can't track. And so because of that, most companies avoid those places because they can't measure them. And what I'm suggesting to marketers is that you lean into them. It's where buyers are. And just because you can't measure them creates a huge opportunity because all the other companies out there are not doing them or they're mailing it in or they're not doing it well. And so the dark funnel is places like third-party sites and all the other channels that I just listed, which are third-party content platforms or direct communication between peers that you do not have access to the data. And so I think that that's a super fascinating topic. I'll pass it over to you, G, but that's something that I've been thinking about a lot. I hadn't put those things together. I've, I've been aware of the dark funnel for a while, but it now makes sense. Like if you just acknowledge that that's the, that's what it's going on up there. And then you acknowledge that you're going to need a different measurement mechanism in order to execute on it, then you can actually go and do stuff, some cool stuff. Yes. Yes. So there's so much in there. Wow. Where do, where do we take this? Cause there's so many ways to slice and dice it. Here's what I kind of have seen and here's what I'll just kind of say to get this thing kicked off. So many marketing teams and sales teams, they're obviously trying to engage buyers when they are in a buying cycle. And the reason why you see so many ineffective marketing and sales executions is because there's just a lot of guesswork happening. That's just plain and simple. And so intent data is trying to solve for that problem. Now there's all sorts of, you know, reliability issues around the data. So I've talked to marketers that have said things like, Hey, you know, zoom info, offers intent data now. G2 offers intent data. Trustpilot, any review site that you work with is likely going to try and offer you intent data. Pretty much so many different types of sources are going to offer you intent data. Now, based on the latest round of acquisitions that I've seen from Demandbase, they've bought a lot of companies and have really, I think, evolved as probably the leader in data quality around intent. But really what it comes down to is like, how do you use that intent data to actually do successful sales and marketing coordinated execution? And that I think is where a lot of teams are struggling. You know, I think even if you do have like a super powerful tool like demand base, it's going to take teams a while before they're ready to actually take that Lamborghini and drive it. And I'll just be candid, you know, the company I work for in Nextiva we are 100% inbound machine, but we're just starting now to build that outbound motion for the first time. And we're big scale. We're over 200 million in annual revenue. But a lot of the challenges that, that we come across with, with intent data, for example, is, is if a user is not cookied, um, you're playing a lot of guesswork there. You can see the kinds of companies that are coming to your website. You can even limit it to like what page they're on. So you can limit it to the pricing page, for example, and try and meet you know, buyers earlier, you're trying to reach out to them before they maybe raise their hand and fill out a form fill for a demo. But, uh, you know, that's really the state that's setting the stage for where it's all at. Now we could take this convo in many different ways, Chris, mm -hmm. but like, that's where I think we should maybe start it. Yeah. I think that's pretty good. Maybe we should continue to pivot. So like that, I'm just trying to make a point here on the idea. So I agree with everything you said on the intent data side. I think the reliability and then how it triggers action and there's different things that companies really need to figure out. I think if you look at it more so less on the like full orchestration between sales and marketing and more just on the marketing level to acknowledge that those are places where people are doing things and researching and discovering things and acknowledging that you are not able to track them the way that you've been accustomed to tracking them 
if you can acknowledge both of those realities, then it can allow you to actually go and do th- some things that are working really well. Agreed. Um, because if you think about this, right, like let's say you want to do a motion with your sales team that does proactive outbound based on intent data, uh, according to your sales pricing page, even if you get to that point and you see that a certain company has been hammering your pricing page, everyone's real excited, big count. You start looking through the kinds of profiles on LinkedIn that fit within the kinds of, um, buyers who would typically buy from you and you start reaching out, how do you even get them to the point where they are checking out your pricing page to your point, Mm, right? The dark funnel, you know, especially if you're a tool, like, I'm just going to throw this out there. Like if you're a gong, for example, where there's not a ton of search demand around the thing that you sell, you have to go out and create that existing demand. And now I think we're getting to creating demand versus capturing demand. Mm -hmm. I see a lot of people out there ripping the companies who are just capturing the existing demand, right? Like us, for example, Nextiva, there's a shit ton of existing demand. So if you're a company that sells a product that has a ton of existing demand, go out and get that existing demand and focus on that. There's nothing wrong mm. with that. But if you're a company like Gong, where you, you have to create that demand, now you're talking about doing all the things that, Chris, you always say, mm-hmm. right? illuminating the dark funnel by doing hard to measure marketing activities that executives don't like investing in because it's hard to track and hard to you know, quantify the measurement of those things. So then you got to wonder what is intent data really doing anyway, <laughs> right? Because mm-hmm. you can't really see those 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 places that are hard to measure and, you know, things like word of mouth marketing yeah. and podcasting and stuff can't track. So at the end of the day, it's like everybody's doing their best to try and reach buyers sooner than the competitor. That's what this really comes down to. So intent data only accelerates that so far for you so if you're not doing those things that, Chris, you always talk about, creating demand in ways that are hard to measure, then even intent data is only going to take you so far. Mm-hmm. And the that, biggest I benefit, think, and I think I've mentioned this a couple of times, I think the biggest benefit for companies right now that are going to transition to intent data is that it allows them to get off of the MQL system that's been created. It's a huge driver. I watch companies that, that do both things at once. They move to more of a strategy that we talk about today and have their SDRs get deployed based on intent data with accounts that are firmographic good fits that are in buy mode. It's a way better overall system than this content download hamster wheel. And so I think that's a huge benefit. I got to believe that when executed properly, the intent data outbound system has got to work better than cold lead gen on LinkedIn ebook downloads. Absolutely. And and that is, you know, kind of the, I think the breakthrough, you know, old school 2008 was ebook, your classic sort of funnel that you see Mm -hmm. ebook to, you know, that top of funnel, nurture, email, score it, try and, you know, reach out once they, you know, a certain number of clicks are achieved or something like that. Whereas now with this new way of doing it, um, you kind of skip all that. A lot of companies are even going completely ungated content capturing cookies, hammering, retargeting ads and ABM execution as a replacement for the old school 2007, you know, serious decisions Mm -hmm. flow. And I think that's what we're seeing in the market. Yeah. Yeah. I hear some people shouting out the the Nextiva SEMrush instance down here in the chat, which is awesome. We'll shout out over there. Okay. Let's pivot. I got a good one here that I want to go back and forth on. It's the idea of, of compounding gains and the idea that, basically the sub here is 
why marketers should focus on channels that have results that accelerate, that accelerate faster over time with the same amount of effort or less. And there's some places like the, definitely this podcast is happening, definitely LinkedIn, it's happening. I think there's a, I would argue, and I think that you would argue as well, I think that SEO when executed properly fits into this bucket as well. And so I think there's some really interesting um, ideas here that I'd like to kind of go back and forth with you on. Yeah, I mean, marketing momentum is real. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one example that we have seen at Nextiva of this that we're really big on is YouTube SEO. And and this kind of fits into creating demand. Yeah, you were talking about this last time I, I was talking to you. I want to hear more about this. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, if you think of something super basic like going to the gym, you know, and building muscle, as you continue to do this over time, you get that compounding effect. My friend Eric Sue he runs a a podcast called marketing school with Neil Patel and they've done over a thousand episodes. I mean, Joe Rogan over a thousand episodes, Chris, the day will come where demand gen life hits over a thousand episodes, you know, with SEO thousands of backlinks, thousands of blog articles, thousands of landing pages, you know, in aggregate. Right. So when you think about the, the compounding effect of the, the aggregation of marginal gains theory, Mm -hmm. where you just little by little, you keep compounding and you stick to it. See, consistency and persistence and long-term thinking is the reason why a lot of marketing execution fails. And I know, Chris, you're big on like marketing takes time. And Mm -hmm. and I firmly agree with that. No matter what it is you're trying to do at Sales Hacker, the long-term goal was like building the most killer engaged email list of all time. That was like the North Star metric. For a lot of other companies, it's other things. But for us right now, what we've seen is like, all right, Chris, you identified that in your world, podcasting was pretty much wide open. You know, there wasn't a lot of companies doing great demand gen podcasts. You saw for that pretty much unexpectedly by the the little (laughs) experiment we tried and then it grew into something and now you stuck with it. And here you go. Here's the result. I mean, for us, it was YouTube SEO. We looked at our competitors and we said, all right, every single competing company in our industry is treating YouTube like an afterthought. It's just a bunch of like, you know, old ass product videos and like crappy customer stories that no one cares about. We have the chance to do something really cool. Why not zag when mm-hmm. everyone else is zigging? You know, <laughs> so huge insight. I've been we've been thinking about doing this for our company as well. Absolutely. Well, so absolutely. Let's, let's help all the viewers. What are you doing tactically? What's working? How should people think about it? How should they approach it? All right. So for us, it was super easy to do because we already had a killer content strategy for the website and um, our demand gen. So literally, we just mirrored. All right, everything we've already created a top ranking blog article on. Let's mirror that with a YouTube video. Mm-hmm. Every high converting landing page that is relevant, let's add a video to go along with that. Even the pricing page, what I've noticed in our industry and actually pretty much all SaaS, nobody thinks about explaining pricing in a super easy and concise way. I saw Jason Freed from Hey.com, the Basecamp guys. I know they're not the most popular right now, but take it, take it how you want. They did a genius thing where they put a video of the CEO just talking about pricing on the pricing page, right? Now, that may seem basic and rudimentary, but that is something that nobody else is doing. So we decided to actually do a pricing explainer, and we're doing a a test right now against our affiliate traffic. Why affiliate traffic instead of just putting it on the pricing page to begin with? Because our affiliate uh, traffic is some of the most high intent traffic that we have. So we like to often test things against high intent traffic before we just go ahead and put it on the site. So where am I going with all this? Um, 
you know, you have to find out where there's gaps in your competitor's strategies and go hammer something that they're not thinking about. If you just mm-hmm. copy what everybody else is doing, it's just going to lead to more of this sameness that we're seeing where everyone's doing the same executions. Everybody's doing the same plays. Everybody's doing the same kind of content. Um, and it just kind of is a race to the bottom at some point because everything is just so oversaturated and so crowded and so competitive and so difficult. And so you really got to try and find ways to exploit what other competitors are not thinking about. Totally. And I think when you look at it from a competitive side, or you could frame it up just looking at what your customers are doing and then seeing what's open, is that part of it is on the channel, right? And so part of it is our competitors aren't doing LinkedIn or our competitors aren't doing YouTube SEO. But the other part that people overlook is the execution in the channel, right? And so there's a lot of noise on LinkedIn. But there's a ton of white space too. There's Agreed. a ton of ton of white space. There's a ton of white space in a lot of a lot of channels. And so I think I encourage people to think about that because from the outside, everything feels crowded. People think that podcasting is crowded. And so yeah. yeah. Well, when we were at Sales Hacker, for those of you don't who don't know, I used to lead marketing at Sales Hacker. And um the Sales Hacker podcast uh, is something that I started when I was there. The reason why it came to life is because I actually surveyed our audience and, um, you know, asking them if there was a sales hacker podcast, would you subscribe? Like 97% said yes. And I took it to a CEO and I said, yo, I mean, the, the numbers speak for themselves. We got to do a sales hacker podcast. And he was like, no, why would we do that? There's a million podcasts out there. But I said, mm-hmm. yeah, but look, there's a million blogs. If that's mm-hmm. the case, why have a blog? Why have a website? <laughs> you know, why have a product? Why have anything? I mean, everything's saturated. Everything's competitive. Mm-hmm. You just got to find a way to position it um, uniquely so that you can stand out and be different and put together something awesome. So um, don't let that part discourage you, I would say, Chris. But one thing I wanted to pivot back on was like one thing we've talked about in the past is a lot of companies, they think about production. They don't think about the distribution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you can create all this content and create all these assets, but like, how are you actually going to get it in front of the eyeballs that matter? And you know, the the industry we're in is an industry that is not you know ripe for LinkedIn. Our sweet spot is like CIOs, IT directors, and stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, you have some of that on LinkedIn, but it's primarily just as everyone knows, marketing and salespeople on LinkedIn. So that's not going to be a good avenue. And for us, there's a lot of silent traffic. There's a lot of silent distribution, meaning people are searching like for really technical things like PBX SIP trunking for call centers. <laughs> you know, like that is like a, a, a big thing in our world, but like effectively distributing that content is really tough because it's so niche. So going back to you, like how would you think about some distribution strategies for hard to reach audiences? So a couple of things that, have, and it depends on, your business dynamics, but I'll just kind of go through a couple of the ones, a couple of places where I think it's open right now that we're starting to look more deeply at. One is Reddit. I think it's a really interesting channel. I've been on podcasts that get shared on Reddit and it's by far the one where I get the most DMs about it. So there's something happening there that we're going to go and start to try and figure out a little bit. Candidly, I'm horrible at Reddit marketing. I've never been able to crack it. Um, <laughs> you know, anybody who has, I'll, I'd love to talk to you about it. But Chris, I don't know if you've got experience with, mm-hmm. with Reddit, but it's just a really tough one to crack. I, it's been a channel that I've never been able to figure out. Not much on that right now. And another one that I would consider on hard to reach audiences, depending on your ACB, is 
targeted direct mail, something that we're act- actually actively going to start testing on that one as a quasi, you know, conversion mechanism or different things like that. I think that's an interesting one. And lastly, I think that it's a really interesting mindset to have with the idea that if you create something that people truly love, they'll come and get it. Right? So you need the initial distribution. You ideally mm. it's better if you have full distribution, but over time, like the promotion that we do on our podcast is not what's driving the follower growth. It's that a lot of people like it and they share it with other people. Hmm. And so from a pure content strategy, you need to be able to get the word out, but over time, the quality of the information, the consistency on those different things. And we have funny, I'll just, we can parlay this into the next topic if you want, which is just the, my reflections on building. Uh, we just crossed into the top 25 marketing podcasts in the, in the U S amazing. We Congrats. went from, Congrats. from zero to that in less than 13, 14 months. Mm. Thanks for the, appreciate all the support, everyone. And I want to talk through some of the things that we learned along the way. The first one is that we had no plan when we started it. Gatano and I just showed up on a Zoom and we recorded it. It's funny that he's, we wrote the agenda before we decided he was going to come on. So it's just ironic this happened. Yeah. So just try, just get started, right? Like, and we've evolved in the format. We do demand gen live, but the one that's hitting the hardest right now is live consulting calls. I did one today with a SaaS company. And like, so the ability to start and then be open to experimenting with other things. We're doing internal podcasts. We're doing live recorded consulting calls with SaaS companies or other types of companies. We're doing live sessions. We're doing events that are recorded, both virtual and physical, and a ton of different things. And then we try something. And if it works, we keep going. And if we don't get great feedback, then we, we move around. So that was one big thing is just, is just get started and try and be open to trying new things along the way. Just like I call it micro innovation. I feel like companies get stuck in doing one specific thing and then they just keep doing that thing, right? And if I kept doing that thing, we would just be one episode a week, Demand Gen Live, and I would just be writing text posts and LinkedIn. And there's so much at a channel level, I'm sure this goes for SEO and a ton of other things, micro innovation that everyone else in, in your company doesn't see, but it matters a lot. It doesn't recognize how meaningful it can be. It's something I want to talk to people about and just communicate like the details inside of a channel. And when you understand it really deeply is huge, huge advantage. Can't talk about it enough. Agreed across the board, man. So there's two parts to that in my mind. You know, the first part is like, you got to just pick something and go. A lot of teams, a lot of companies get caught up in, well, we need an overarching strategy. How does this fit into the big company picture? Mm-hmm. Sometimes you don't need all that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you got to just go. And often, especially in the, the bigger the company you're in, uh, the harder it may be to do this, but sometimes the easier it may be to do this. Sometimes you just quietly just start an initiative. Don't tell anybody about it. Just start saying, all right, guys, look what I accomplished in the last three months. We're seeing some growth here. We're going to keep this going. I don't care what anyone says. That's kind of the way I roll. So, you know, kind of like Chris, how you just didn't have a plan for demand gen, you know, Mm -hmm. it was just like, all right, let's just try it and see where it goes. That's kind of what we do with our YouTube SEO strategy. We didn't tell anybody about it. We didn't make a big Mm -hmm. deal out of it. We just said, all right, let's just pick this and go. Let's just run with it, go. And And then see what you get. Just see what you get. Totally. And then in doing that, the funny thing that happens is you actually become great at those innovative little micro details, like you're saying, in these channels because you spend so much time in them. So as you're doing three, six, 12 months of YouTube SEO, you start to do a lot of analysis on what 
other people are doing in there versus what you're doing. And you start to learn little title tag tricks. You start to learn what is the way to create videos that are unique and different that stand out. And it's the same thing with SEO. You start to notice, all right, everybody's doing the same old tricks. All right, we can easily differentiate by doing XYZ tactics, by including a video content in our, on our landing pages. We can stand out by having juicier, more humanized headlines that are not written for robots because we understand that keyword stuffing is old. And that if you <laughs> if you write for click-through rate and engagement, you're going to do much better off in the long run because that is actually the science behind the algorithm right now anyway. It's far less about keywords and backlinks and technical stuff and more about does the people who search for this and click on your stuff actually give a shit? So all that is stuff that you actually pick up once you become committed to a channel and you stay committed to a long-term execution in that channel. And if you don't see yourself getting good and you don't see yourself, you know, making progress, then you probably are not doing something right. You probably suck. It doesn't align with your strengths and you could stop doing it. Mm-hmm. So um, those are my thoughts on that one. Yeah. So I'm going to keep going on this one. Number one thing that we learned is just go, right? What's We covered that one. Number two, in a place where I see a lot of people miss, is on consistency. No matter what marketing execution that you're doing, consistency matters deeply. The idea of one podcast a month versus three a week and the compounding results of how much better you get at communicating, but also how many more episodes you put out in a year is something that's really huge how you're at the top when somebody opens their podcast versus below the home screen and they don't even see your podcast because you haven't published an episode in four weeks and then they don't click on it. There are so many little details on consistency that I think is huge. And that's something that as a marketer, like that's how we've built this company by being consistent on LinkedIn, by being consistent on a podcast, by being consistent with the community, by being consistent on replying to comments and different things like that. So number two, consistency, huge. Number three, which has been interesting, I want to shout out all the people here. Like, we got a little community here and it's awesome. I really appreciate all of you. And I'm sure that I can see the chat and I know that there's connections happening in between. I know people have gotten cool jobs and different stuff like that because of the networking here. It's awesome. It's like, I think that if you're going to move into a podcast, you should think about how to create a community inside of it, like sort of like what we've done here. And so... I think that's number three. And then the next one, which is huge, which I see almost nobody do right now, is everyone, the only podcast play that most people are doing is with a guest, just one-on-one. I'm going to interview somebody and I'm just going to have them share their expertise on my podcast for my audience. When you do that, you don't have a ton of control over driving a narrative of your company. And you don't know whether or not your audience actually wants to know those things. I mean, I'm sure some people do, right? You're asking questions, but I think that audience participation and how much we've leaned and the things that are working the best for us right now are demand gen live and the recorded consulting calls, which are just it's pure Q&A. And so trying to figure out how you can get some type of question and answer directly from people that are like your buyer, I think is a huge one. Yeah, I, I love that one too, because now you're suddenly the in the position of expertise on your mm-hmm. own show. Whereas um, if you just 
focus on inviting other guests, you're kind of at the mercy of their ranting, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, you know, you guys probably feel the pain of me <laughs> ranting maybe a little too much, but mm-hmm. I, I dig that. I'm, I'm sure there's more and I'm sure hopefully we get some Q and A on this one. We can go deeper, but the last one that I have on my list is relevance. Relevance, both to a very, very specific and narrow target group that you're trying to communicate. That's one part of it, but there's a whole nother part where like, when the iOS 14 changes got implemented on a Monday, we talked about it on a Tuesday and we published it on a Wednesday, right? And other companies, it would be published on Monday, they would record the episode three months later and then it would take them a month to actually post-produce it and publish it. And by then it's actually irrelevant. I'm super fascinated how long, cause I'm guest on a lot of podcasts and I wanna publish them on our own podcast, how long companies take to edit something. It's not that hard. Just take the front and the back and go boom, boom and publish it. And so I'm cutting down on post-production time so that you can have more volume is another thing that I I recommend for people, which is like a a mini, mini strategy, mini hack. I love it, man. It comes down to like dropping this desire to be the ultimate perfectionist. Speed over perfectionism, I think is the the mantra there. Mm -hmm. And I agree with it. Cool. Let's move to some Q&A people. Drop in your questions. Come up on here. We got Katano here. So if you have uh, you have SEO or other sort of related tactics that, I mean, I can answer, but you probably don't want me to answer them. <laughs> I, 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 down, I downplay my SEO skills, but she's way better. So <laughs> if you got questions, feel free to drop them. Otherwise, we'll keep yeah. going. By the way, I got time for like two or three questions, Max. Um, I'm taking my, my beautiful, awesome mom out to a nice dinner. So nice. Um, yeah. So of course I put mama ahead of demand gen life, but you know, no, no diss to you folks. I love hanging out with you guys. So fire away. Chris, we did get the question last week about your thoughts on outsourcing expertise. So, I mean, mm-hmm. maybe that plays into experimentation. Like when should you find a partner that has the expertise to help you execute in a new channel? Well, or, or just general thoughts on outsourcing expertise? The core when you outsource something, I think, is to go faster and avoid mistakes. That's it. And so when I look at those, and it's interesting you asked the question because we just literally covered that speed over everything, especially when, at this point with our target, venture-funded SaaS, like speed matters. There's a burn and getting somewhere where you want to go in 12 months versus getting there in three months with a partner I think it's just, it's not even a question. And so I believe that that's the core of finding external people to help you with certain things that you know that like every company can do things on their own, right? Like we could do something and we'd be able to get it done, but I value, like I said, speed. And so I believe that's one of the core components. The other thing, the thing that I don't believe that can be outsourced, and I talk about this a lot and I'm interested in Gatano's thoughts is, you cannot outsource customer intimacy. You can't outsource the idea that like you as a company, the only thing that really, really matters on a marketing team is do you deeply, deeply understand your customers? And if that was the number one priority, I think we'd have a lot more successful marketing executions, to be honest. And so, gee, what do you, what do you got on outsourcing? I'm sure you guys have some partners and do some things. How does it work at big company land? Yeah. So in big company world, you know, um, there's a couple of different thoughts. The way I run shit, you never outsource because you don't have the expertise. 
you ne- <laughs> you never do that. There, you ne- you never imagine this, right? Imagine you guys need to ramp up SEO at your company. Nobody internally truly understands SEO. They may know basic principles, but they don't truly know the ins and outs of how it works. So you get a directive from your manager, from your you know top level to go and find um, an agency to basically outsource all of your SEO to. What is likely to end up happening is you are going, your head is going to be spinning alone in the evaluation process of who to choose because they're going to be throwing all these things at you that you just don't understand. The chances of getting taken advantage of are very high. The chances of losing money and wasting money and poor execution are very high. And then this leads to the thing Chris was just saying, which is even more important about the customer intimacy. Guess what you got to do to drive great SEO? You got to know about the customers. You've got to know about the product. And this is why outsourcing content is just so mm-hmm. bad because you're just going to have content writers guessing. Um, or this is doing this, a Google search and then just rewriting things that have already been already just recompilating shit that's already out there. You know, let's talk about case studies, right? There are a lot of companies who are massively, massively, massively struggling to produce high value, high quality, heavy hitting, relevant, timely, useful case studies. The desire to outsource case studies is very high among tech companies right now. I have a friend who uh, runs a business called Case Study Buddy. His name is Joel uh, Kletke out of Canada. He's a homie of mine. Awesome dude. He's drowning in requests. He can't keep up with the amount of companies that are looking to hit him up to do case studies. But what happens when they hit him up? They see his process and they're like, damn, we could have, you know, his process is all about talking to customers, talking to people internally, reading chat logs, reading emails, listening to calls, right? Talking to customers. So whether you hire somebody like that to go do it or you do it internally, you still got to have that customer intimacy. Mm-hmm. So Chris, the shit you said, man, is just so spot on. The, if you if you don't have that customer intimacy, you're really going to struggle. Mm-hmm. Well, we've got Gatano on. Uh, we got a question in the chat. What's the best SEO move brands can make today to get the most bang for their buck? Specifically, is it better content quality or distribution, more distribution? What do you think? All right. So here's the deal. So companies that are firmly planted as like the leaders that are at the top of their categories and are already dominating they typically have stronger domain authorities. So what that means is they're able to produce content that doesn't have to be massively robotic. So if you look at Zoom, for example, they really don't do any SEO. They just do all brand marketing. And so if they were to do SEO and you saw a Zoom result for like, let's just say, you know, video conferencing system, and you saw a challenger brand in that SERP that worked really hard to get behind Zoom at number two, more chances are people are still going to pick Zoom. (laughs) Even though their content is not optimized for search, they're ranking their purely off-brand strength. And so the challenger brand is going to have a very, very hard time going up against the category leader in SEO because even if you do a great job, you're still going to get out-muscled purely off brand. So the number one thing you can do actually to bolster your position in SEO and non-branded search is to develop your brand to a higher affinity in your audience. And that goes back to doing all the things that Chris said around creating demand. So if you couple SEO with all these other strategies, you're going to go so much further 
because it's going to be more of a brand activity rather than just, you know, bottom of funnel transactional keywords, you know, in, in our industry, it's things like business phone service, business phone system. And, you know, those keywords are extremely hard to rank for purely just due to all the noise that's in the, in the search results. So not only are you up against other vendors, you're up against affiliate websites, you're up against aggregator websites, you're up against review sites, you're up against Amazon now that's getting into the game for business phone systems, right? Zoom, they launched the VoIP product now. See, so now you're seeing a convergence in the market of sameness. A lot of tools are converging and doing the same shit. So Pipedrive is no longer a CRM company. It's really all coming down to sales engagement and customer engagement. Most tools now are going to fit into one of those two buckets. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, going back to the, the point, it's just nail brand as much as you can and couple SEO with a lot of demand creation and brand building strategies and you'll go a lot further. Cool. I got one that came in through LinkedIn, MJ, if you have others, it'd be good. But this, this one I'm interested in Gatano's um, opinion, maybe just like talk through how you think about it. Cause to be honest, I don't think there's enough detail to make a blanket statement, but I'd be interested in hear what you think. So this question came in DM on LinkedIn said some nice things about the podcast and then said, I work for a large financial firm, but feel like I'm, falling behind due to the organizational, in quotes, goals. I have a close relationship with an ABM provider and thinking about taking a move to a smaller, more nimble growth company where I can learn more. Would you jump? How do you think about that? Oh, man. <laughs> so the just to recap, the question is, I'm firmly planted as a senior position in some big company, but I'm bored. So should I jump ship to a scrappier company so I can get more in the trenches and learn more? Is that it? you can interpret however you want. I don't think there's enough information. I I mean, that's the way I took it. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are the pros and cons? I, so, you know, there are a lot of pros and cons. I mean, me, I kind of went the opposite route. I went small companies first, worked my way up to big companies. And I, I found that was very beneficial because I started at an agency, brought those agency skills to in-house. And then I was at high growth startups. And actually Nextiva, when I joined the company, it was around 60 million in revenue. That was three years ago. Fast forward today, around 200 million in revenue. So I've always been a part of either really small companies or companies that were on a high growth trajectory that have become large. And so I've never actually felt bored because I was always in high pace environments, fast growth environments. So for me, that was great. But if you're one of these people that have always been at like category leader brands, like if you worked at like Facebook, then you went to Google, then you went to Microsoft, then you went to Salesforce, you, you know, you did the Silicon Valley loop-de-loop. <laughs> yeah, you're going to make a, a lot of money, but you're probably going to be unsatisfied, unfulfilled and bored. So, you know, I, I don't know if I have a good answer on that one, Chris. I mean, I've had... Um, senior leaders from Salesforce apply to roles at Nextiva because they wanted to get more scrappy. But then guess what happened? We don't pay Salesforce rates. Mm -hmm. I don't think many companies do. Salesforce people get paid really well. So then when you get to the point of the conversation where you guys start talking about dollars and cents, it's like, whoa, I was used to making, you know, an absorbent salary with, you know, all these perks. And now I I can't get that. That's what you're telling me. Mm -hmm. So that's the downside of like being accustomed to these, you know, big logo brand companies that can pay you a shit ton and you can, you know, just sit at the top. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if I have a good answer on that one, Chris, but for me, I just know I wouldn't work at a company like that because it just doesn't fit my DNA. So you should just work with companies that fit and align to your, you know, personal DNA. Totally. Yeah. The big company marketing role would not fit me either. And I'll just talk through the pros and cons. I 
I've skewed. Yeah, sorry, Chris, but I got to bounce. Yeah, um, yeah. Talk Gee, to you guys. Great Peace to out. have you. Later. We could go on this. Have fun with your mom. Thanks, guys. Have a good night. Bye. When you look on the on the small company side, the advantages that I see are that you get to work way more cross departmentally and within marketing, you get exposed to a lot of different functions. I've been talking about this a lot recently. I really believe in it specifically after I have been reflecting on my career progression. And I was on a meetup um, on Friday with field marketing. I've done field marketing before. I did it in 2017. And so I understand those things too. For a marketer working in a small company to have the ability to get exposed into the depth of field marketing, product marketing, brand, and demand because there's only six marketers. And so you can get that type of experience, um, which is interesting. People looked at me and my resume and they're like, what the heck are you doing? It's like, I worked at a $40 million company and basically did all functions of marketing. So you can, you learn a lot more. And so it depends where you are in your career. I think that if you're prioritizing learning, then I, I do believe that small companies provide an interesting advantage depending on where you want to go long-term in your career. Um, I, allow, I think it allows you to build depth of skills cross-functionally at that time. Like I could analyze the P&L of this private company and I just had easy access to those different things. I built a ton of financial skills and different things. So I'm personally skewing to small company. And the other thing that I want people to really consider is that in small companies, your marketing really has to work. In a big, large financial firm with the brand carry halo, like it's not very clear whether or not what you're doing is actually working. And a lot of the tactics that work in big co don't play in small co, lack of budget, lack of brand, all those different things. The things that big companies have are established scale and brand. <laughs> That's about it. They get all of their advantages through scale. And so I think that marketers that are looking to really hone their craft might be better off moving to a small company. But again, I think it's a personal decision for everyone. I've got a question coming back to the experimentation stuff, which is how long do you need to give it? Like, how do you scope out an experiment? Because I feel like the danger is a lot of companies would like quit before they really knew if it was working or not. So it's going to be a weird answer for people, but as a marketer, you need to be able to feel whether or not it's working. I know executives up here are going to be like, we don't believe in that shit. Da, 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 da. But like, it doesn't take very long if you understand the nuances of a channel and how audiences are, are responding to know that it's going to work. And that's a pure skill from a marketer by being enough in the details and close enough to your customer to know. I use the example a lot. Like I knew my LinkedIn stuff was going to work when I got seven likes on posts just because of who the people, seven likes, three comments, the three comments were you know, VPs of marketing at SaaS companies. And it was just obvious that if I keep doing this, more people are going to appreciate and enjoy it. Same thing goes for a podcast and a lot of different things. The key is adjusting your measurement into qualitative data for the feeling. Like I'm saying that it's a feeling, but it's really qualitative insights that you get by looking at different things. And so it could be what's in the comment or who's saying that or different things. It could be that like I read, mentioned the Reddit thing that we're going to look more in only because somebody, I was on somebody's podcast and they posted it on Reddit and I got a flood of inbound LinkedIn DMs because of it. And I'm like, something's going on there. And so I think those are what the things that you're looking for early on. I think that in terms of a level of experiment, if you're looking for some type of signal, 
I don't want to give a black and white answer here because I think that depending on what you're doing, it could either be too long or too short. I think that you as a marketer need to know what time window you're looking at and and what time window you're looking for success, right? There's a difference between success being, I know it's going to work because six CMOs like my post versus I know it's going to work because we got a million ARR. And so by setting your success criteria would also define your time window, I think. But I like from a channel perspective, leading into qualitative insights. And as a marketer, you should be able to know that it's going to work. All right. Unfortunately, the other uh, the other chat questions were for Gatana. So we've well, lost our, our source of experts. See, see what we got. Anyone want to come on for a video chat? Otherwise, give me an SEO question. <laughs> we got a question here from Jennifer. Yeah. Jennifer, you want to come on? Uh, I guess so. Hey. <laughs> Hi. Good evening. Yeah. Good so, to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. This is my first time. You have a this is a really interesting, great community. So yeah, thanks for thanks for doing this. I, I was laid off in COVID, so I, I'm starting my own company, but I am a chemist, not a marketer. Mm-hmm. Um, really what I'm doing, I don't think anyone else is doing. So um, I don't have any competitors to really kind of look at how they're marketing. And I'm trying to get, just kind of get, trying to get out there. So I, I do think, I do think content creation is where I need to be at, but I'm, I'm struggling with what that looks like and where it should be. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I'll give you a nice roadmap because I was, I mean, I'm a marketer, but I was by myself and I needed to do the same thing. Right. And okay. so I think the first step, how deeply do you know who you're actually selling to? Well, uh, I was a lab manager for 30 years before this. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm basing it a lot on my experience. Mm-hmm. I, I've also spoken to other people in the industry that kind of uh, have identified who is my potential customer. And, and it really kind of does look like me. So I feel like I, I've got a good handle on who who I'm marketing to. Mm -hmm. So, and I would imagine given your 30 years of experience that you're super knowledgeable and can provide a bunch of value to these people that are doing a job that you've been doing for a really long time. Yeah, Yeah. yeah, I can. And so here's what I would do. I would identify 10 of those people or whoever, and then I would ask them if they want to be a guest on your podcast. We're not doing it to put the podcast on Apple and for a bunch of people to see it yet. I'm just... You're going to ask them to be on your podcast so you can have a conversation with them through that conversation. You're going to be able to record it. You're going to be able to get the video. You're going to be able to insert your own thoughts, which allows you to record video that you can put on LinkedIn or wherever, or wherever you decide to do it. You'll also get the podcast. You'll also get market research. You'll get to understand, do these people actually, you know, I'm just going to call it how I say these people actually find me credible. Do they actually have pain points that I think that we're solving? What else do they care about? What's on their mind? What are their priorities? How are they measured? You'll notice nuances. You probably know a lot of those things, but it might be different. As you go through that process, you're going to be able to hone in because underneath the lab manager, there are a bunch of different sub-segments based on psychographics, based on what companies they work for. There's a million different things. And you should see if there's a specific one that has dramatically more affinity than the rest of them and try and hone in on who that is through that research part of the process. At the same time, you're going to be able to take that content And wherever you decide to publish it, maybe it's not LinkedIn, but we'll just use LinkedIn for this example. You could publish it on LinkedIn. Maybe it's Twitter. 
and get your content thing flowing, right? So it's the mechanism is actually to create your own content, but you're doing it through a podcast. Okay. And then you can get started. Keep doing that. And if it's executed well and people actually like it, one, you're going to start getting better at communicating your thoughts. Two, you're going to be able to get better at understanding the nuances of distribution. And you're going to start getting feedback from people that see your thoughts. Okay. People are going to start asking you questions or they're going to say, you know, I don't agree with that or whatever they say. It's all good because they're giving you insights and they've, you know, taken their time to leave a comment on your post. And you just keep building from there. At some point, people are going to come to you. This is exactly what happened to me. People are going to come to you and say, hey, really been wondering about this. And they're going to ask you basically for free consulting. And you should take that because you're going to be able to take that and use that for a podcast or other LinkedIn. And the snowball keeps rolling. Right? Okay. And so you, you keep moving through that content and you're getting more consumer insights. You're creating more content. You're getting more awareness. And then over time, you got I don't know if you have a product built or if you're selling a service or whatever those things are, but over time, you can actually start to mold your, your product and messaging and overall strategy around that as well. Okay. And, and you talk about a realistic timeline of, I've heard on some of your podcasts, you're looking at 12 to 24 months to kind of mm. build up this. It depends what success criteria is, right? Like for me initially, or for a lot of people that are starting a podcast that are listening to the show, one customer is the ROI of that podcast for the entire year. Okay. Right. And so like, I think it's about understanding what exactly is the indicator. Is it that you have 10 people say that it's great? Is it that you get, you know, 15 customers? Is it that you have 10,000 subscribers? I think defining what you consider success to be would then help you define the timeline. We've been doing the podcast for 12 months and I'm going to continue to do it because I find value in so many different ways, right? Consumer insights, content creation, um, just keeping me like really sharp in terms of my skills and being able to answer questions and then creating content downstream for other platforms that gets built off this podcast. There's so many reasons to do it. So we're going to keep going, but like the dramatic impact of this podcast started getting felt nine months after we started. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Happy to help Jennifer. Glad to have you here. Scott, do you want to come on and ask your question? Scott Marker. Yeah. What's up, Scott? I don't feel I don't, hey, think hey. Ever, I don't think we've ever chatted, right? I see you a lot in the LinkedIn comments, but I don't. No, no, I'm a big yeah. fan of you. Big fan. Good yeah, I just, um, I'm writing my second book on B2B sales. And I'm fascinated because I've, I've, um, I'm in marketing communities like yours. And I, I, I get along and, and respect them more than I do my old school set because they're just, they're, they've lost it. They're doing the 80s still. So my question to you is, is and I've heard you talk about it. And I just want to kind of tease it out. Yeah, let's do it is, you know, a CEO or somebody, you know, high level wants to talk to somebody and they pawn them off to an SDR, which is crazy crap. And then, and then, you know, kind of to te- why wouldn't they just dump, actually even dump AEs that are highly commissioned? Why wouldn't they get industry experts? And so if they, if someone like you, you know, you do this podcast and they come to talk, you know, they'll talk to somebody in a company, why wouldn't they have them talk to an expert that has a good salary not how they commission to close the sale, but know what the hell they're talking about. The, the old SDR model just seems to be broken. And then even the AEs does because it's still, they're talking to salespeople and, and buyers know that. Anyway, mm-hmm. that's my question is, is when do you think companies are going to realize that, or what do you think your, your thoughts on, like 
if someone's interested in products and services from something like this, why would you send them to an SDR, even an AE? Why wouldn't you send them to an expert that can help them out? There's my question. I think in theory, like some of these adjustments, I actually don't, I don't, while people that are listening to this might find these adjustments extreme, I actually don't find them that extreme. And so these adjustments, I believe, make logical sense. The question is, how would you get from there to there? Just making that change is going to really hurt your company in the short term. It's just like, you can't just say, okay, we're going to get rid of all these people or we're going to take experts and that's going to the work, right? There's a methodical way that you could get there. And I do believe that I understand what the path is. Um, and so let's talk through it. So first off, what you're actually talking about here is beginning to blend the idea of what a sales rep and a CSM do. And I'm seeing people think about this more. You can think about it a lot more when you have great marketing driving a ton of inbound demand where it's not really sales anymore. It's more like consulting, right? Like what you mentioned. And so the first step in this model is actually fixing marketing. I think for in a lot of companies, unless your product sucks, step one is, <laughs> is, is fix marketing to making any of these changes downstream. Fix marketing, and then you could start to insert like a sale, whatever you want to call it, solutions consultant, sales engineer, yeah, yeah. CSM, whatever. And you could start to have inbound volume go directly to them. And then you could start to track the differences between those two funnels. And then you could get data and then you could understand where to go next. I think there are, there's definitely pros and cons, right? Like there's pros and cons on the company side. I think from the buyer side, it's pretty positive, these adjustments, but overall, from a business standpoint, I do believe there are pros and cons. And I think that for a lot of companies that have an established model, like I think there are other changes that they could make first to their sales process and sales execution that are less dramatic, that would improve the buyer experience without needing to make such a huge change. And so some of those things I would recommend, like taking inbound volume, routing them directly to AEs, having a, you know, hiring AEs that are super educated, that have domain expertise, that understand buyers, that, you know, those types of things. And so that's sort of my thoughts, but I would happy, be happy to answer a follow-up question as we continue to dive a little bit deeper into this one. Yeah, like I said, you, you've, you've touched on it kind of because it comes to marketing, but Another example is, and again, this is my second book, and I've done, I've, I've interviewed hundreds of companies. I'm talking billion dollar companies. I talked to the vice president of sales. You would know them. And the stuff I talk about, like churn, for example, turnover, I go, do you know the cost of the turnover of all your SDRs, right? Under two years, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they go, well, they don't. They don't, which, which fascinates me. I said, again, I, I get it, but I'm making drastic change. But my follow up question is, is, the companies don't even know how much money they spend on all this churn. And, and then how much, how much opportunity are they losing when, you know, SDRs, they, they don't, you can't become an expert in 1.5 years. And so, and again, I've talked to hundreds of billion dollar companies, million dollar companies, mm-hmm. and, and they all admit to me offline that they have terrible turnover problems in their sales. And mm-hmm. I, I just don't see how, how can, and then a buyer, poor buyer wants to, you know, learn more about a product and they're getting dumped off into somebody that's been there for six months. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I, I guess I, I get that you can't have a drastic change, but it seems like to me that after a decade plus plus of the same old model, that there has to be drastic change. Yeah. And so um, I've watched sort of some of these things that you're talking about happen before. The thing that companies 
do in terms of sales, especially like more old school people, is that they've accepted this model and sales becomes a fixed cost and they don't scrutinize the expenses underneath it, except for on the quota side. But they, it's not whether or not you need that position. It's just whether or not the person that you have is the right person in that position, right? You go over and you, you spend that person's salary in advertising and it gets scrutinized in a completely different way. Yeah. And so that's one thing to think about on the, um, the attrition challenge. Again, like the solution is actually exactly the same as the way that I see it. The solution, the reason that this has been created is because companies are running a go-to-market model that was more appropriate in 2007 than it is today, which therefore they're heavy lead gen. You need a low-cost employee to do filtering before an AE, <laughs> and you don't pay AEs enough because you need so many of them because productivity is low. And so you yeah. have lower salaries, people not hitting quota, generally not a good work environment to do sales because it's a lead gen model. That's why salespeople love working at, for a strong brand, right? And so the way that you fix it, again, is that you would fix marketing first, yeah. which would re relieve pressure on the lead gen model. Leads that are coming through that have high intent to buy would go directly to AEs. You could, over time, reduce the size of the SDR team. Yeah. As you're reducing the size of the SDR team, you could also start to understand as productivity increases on the rep side, you're going to be able to see who, who the really good ones are and who the ones aren't. You might lose reps that are at the bottom that you don't replace. And then over time, you have less reps, less SDRs, overall better productivity, lower customer acquisition costs. And with less reps, people think that it's a bad thing. If you have less sales reps that are more productive, you can pay them all more and you retain them more because yeah. it's a better environment. That change is the way that I see it. I've done that for a $30 million company before. I, I know how that process works. And so... I do uh, have a high level of confidence that it can work. Again, the challenge is that companies don't want to deal with that, uh, that adjustment. It's going into something that's unproven as opposed to running predictable revenue that their investors have you know, been having people do for the past 15 years. Hey, thank you very much for your input. I love it. Good thank you, Chris. Do you, want, do you want the SEO question? Uh, I see some other I see some other questions in here. If you want to shoot me the SEO question, we'll see if I can, you know, dust off the SEOs. Yeah. Uh, uh, the SEO question is basically: uh, this person has very few keywords that they actually care about, and they have a competitor outranking them for one of the ones that they actually care about. They have similar domain authority, good backlinks, mobile page speed. Like, what do you do? How do you how do you knock them out of the top spot? Mm. Pass. <laughs> I would win on brand. Like it's just it's sort of Gatano said an interesting thing too. Like when you are starting to look at like the one or two spot, my focus would then go to between the one and two, there most people are looking at multiple results unless they know exactly what they're going for. And I would focus more on creating demand, winning on brand. And I wouldn't, I think the incremental effort from moving from two to one on that versus doing something else might be different, but it also could be that I just don't know the answer because it's not where I focus. So glad we answered that. The only other question I saw, which our friends in the chat were kind of helping with are, are what are some tools for kind of podcast post-production or how would you approach thinking about that depending on your podcast goals? From a podcast post-production standpoint, at the beginning, Angelica that was on this call earlier, we would take the audio from the Zoom and then she would go into some like basic editing program and just cut the front and the back. 
Like it took 15 seconds and we would publish that. And so at the beginning, I don't think you need a lot. Um, when it comes to post-production for micro content, there are a couple of different options. There are some SaaS tools out there. I've never tried any, but I imagine that they're okay. They can get you pretty far in terms of like headline, different things like that. Or you could outsource the post-production for someone to make the video clips at a pretty low cost, which is another potential option. But when you make the clips, the most time-consuming and important part is choosing what the clip is and what the headline reads. And so it's difficult to outsource that unless the person that you're outsourcing to can understand what you're talking about, where the important parts are and what to put in the headline. Cool. What else? Last call. Anybody want to come on for a question? We're good. We'll do a little, we'll do a short episode here. Cool, everyone. I I appreciate you. We had some topics on here. I'll go a little bit. I'm going to go a little bit deeper on the, the dark funnel one again next week. We'll come back to that. I feel like there's, there's more that I could share there, but that one I think is a major insight for marketers. And I think it's a major insight to help marketers communicate to executives about what's going on in these specific channels, why they can't be measured because they're third party owned by a different company. And that company has no incentive to give you that data. And then how important it is that you execute on there because your competitors either aren't or aren't doing it. It's something that I'm obsessed with right now. I think it's an interesting kind of take. I haven't heard anyone think about the dark funnel in that way. I've always seen a position for uh, intent data. And so appreciate all of you. We'll have the, hopefully have the studio ready next week. It should be pretty cool. Hope to see you back there. And I hope you have a great rest of your week. Thanks everyone. Have a good night. Hey everyone. Thanks for checking out this episode of the state of demand gen podcast. You know, It's crazy to think that now more than 15,000 demand marketers, sales reps, product marketers, field marketers, CMOs, and everything in between are listening to this podcast and getting a ton of value out of it. And so if you've been listening to the podcast and you've been getting value out of it, I would really, really, really appreciate if you could leave a rating in the podcast section. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you and see you for the next episode.